Welcome to Beyond the Seminar, where I sit down and have a conversation with a real-life scientist visiting the UC Davis Biomedical Engineering Department's seminar series. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Richard Corsi, an indoor environmental engineer, former alumnus of UC Davis, and our current dean of the College of Engineering. Dr. Corsi's research focuses on indoor air quality, and his recent invention, the Corsi Rosenthal Box, has been widely covered by numerous media outlets, as well as the White House's COVID-19 Task Force. This simple DIY box can be constructed from over-the-counter air filters, a box fan, and some duct tape, resulting in a cheap and easy way to remove respiratory droplets from the air, and has emerged as a major competitor to more expensive HEPI units, especially with regards to minimizing exposure to COVID-19 in indoor spaces. Here's our chat. So, welcome to the program, and I'm curious how you were initially interested in exploring air quality as a research topic. Yeah, so it goes back to um, some research that I was doing at the University of Guelph in Ontario, Canada, where we were actually studying chlorine chemistry in raw sewage. And we had an experiment in our laboratory where we were um, uh, using Javex, which is kind of the Canadian, big Canadian uh, bleach that's used for for uh, bleaching clothes. And uh, we were interested in knowing how much of the chlorine that was used in the washing machine actually got to the sewer that contained sodium hypochlorite in uh, in our appliances, in our dishwashers or washing machines. We can generate a lot of stuff that becomes airborne in the indoor environment. So that was the first kind of, gee, that's interesting. A little light bulb went on. I soon after that left to go to the University of Texas at Austin, and the first student that approached me at UT Austin, the first graduate student, said, I'd like to do some research on indoor air quality. And it just happened to be that a year before I had done this research with this washing machine experiment. I said, that's interesting. Maybe we can get some money to study volatilization of chemicals from drinking water to indoor air. And uh, and we got money from the US EPA, got, got, a, got a big grant from the US EPA to do this. And that's what got me started. It was really the, the interest of a specific student named Cindy Howard. Um, and then, and I kind of stuck with it because of the realization of a, how much little, how little work had been done in this field, first of all, um, and how important it was with respect to kind of human activity patterns, right? Is that we spend such a huge fraction of our lives inside of buildings. Most of the air pollution we're exposed to during our lifetime happens inside of buildings, even, even pollution of outdoor origin. Uh, and it just struck me that because of that and because of how little research was being done in the field, that there was this great opportunity to make real contributions to improving human health, improving population health by improving air quality inside of buildings. This is where we spend most of our lives. Yeah, one thing you mentioned in your, your excellent talk this morning was modern buildings aren't designed to filter most things out from the outside, even though we, we know they're toxic. So what's the big challenge there, you think? The big challenge is, is a changing a mindset, right? Um, that's just the way things have always been done. And so mm. sometimes there's this momentum with the way things have always been done to change the way people think, right? Um, the other challenge is cost, obviously. It, it, is, um, it is expensive to retrofit existing systems on school buildings or on commercial buildings or on, in homes to, to, to improve indoor air quality by reducing the amount of pollution that comes in, especially residential buildings. They're, 
98% of residential buildings in the United States don't have design air intakes. Air comes in from wherever air comes in through, whether it be cracks in windows or underneath doors, et cetera. We call that infiltration. Um, to get to a point where we really want to improve indoor air quality in homes with respect to outdoor air pollution, we need to put design air intakes on homes and then treat the air that's, that's coming in from that one location instead of trying to treat the air that's coming in from a thousand different locations on the home. It may be too early to tell, but obviously, you know, currently our state of California is ravaged by wildfires. Um, of course, you know, as a result of this airborne virus, COVID-19, uh, wreaking havoc all across the planet. Are, is, do you sense a sea change in people's attitudes towards the importance of this or maybe that people would start to our mindset, our minds being changed? Yeah, I, I think there's a huge sea change. Um, suddenly, the American public is becoming tuned in to terms like air changes per hour and HEPA and what a MERV filter is. These are things that the general public really didn't know anything about is a, is a pretty good generalization. Um, and, and, I th and I think people are interested in finding out more about how they can improve indoor air quality. This all sort of started with the pandemic and fear about infectious disease, airborne infectious disease transmission. But what I've seen during the pandemic is more and more stories being written in the popular press about not just the pandemic, but about allergens in indoor air and about wildfire smoke and about sources of indoor air pollution that, you know, gas stoves and those kinds of things. The, the number of stories being written about the importance of indoor air quality, sources of indoor air pollutants, how to remove pollutants from indoor air is probably increased by a factor of 10 uh, relative to, to prior to the pandemic. And a lot of great research being done here at Davis on that. And do you sense, a, you know, we're going to be getting an increase in funding to study these problems as well? Yeah, I do. I think that there'll be uh, um, nationwide, there'll be an increase in funding related to indoor air quality. You know, we, unfortunately, my observation after living for 62 years in the United States is we tend to be a very reactive and not proactive country. We tend to react when something major happens, like, you know, the um, oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico. Suddenly there was a ton of money to study oil, oil spills uh, in the Gulf of Mexico. And, and I think here we're, we're going to see a lot of money thrown at how do we reduce the spread of airborne infectious disease in buildings. And I think there'll be money for improving indoor air quality buildings in general. People are really tuning in now to air, indoor air quality in the schools their children go to. That's just become a huge issue during this pandemic, the importance of proper ventilation, the, the, the importance of removing aerosol uh, particle concentrations in, in air, whether it be respiratory aerosols or, or allergens or wildfire smoke. So I, th I think there will be a lot more research funding. And what we've seen in the United States now, especially in engineering, is there's very few programs that have more than one person doing indoor air quality research. I think that's gonna change. I think we're gonna see more universities investing in faculty in this area because there will be money. Small field, not many people working in it. We have small international conferences, 500 to 1,000 people um, every two or three years. Um, but I think that's gonna, it's gonna grow. Yeah, poised to explode, certainly. Yeah. So what, can you give us a primer on these respiratory droplets and you know how you're thinking about them in general? Yeah, so uh, respiratory aerosols, aerosol particles that are generated either uh, from the, the, the deep lung or the mid, middle of the lung, it's all mechanically generated particles. It's all, you know, from speaking and our vocal cords generating aerosols, or as we're speaking, saliva in our mouth becomes airborne or, or coughing when we get a shearing from our 
uh, the mucus in our lungs that becomes airborne. It's all mechanically generated in a respiratory system. Um, um, there is no single particle size distribution. The, the range of particles in different sizes, the number of particles different sizes varies a lot from person to person and the mode of that mechanical generation out of our respiratory system. But in general, we're talking about uh, respiratory particles that can contain viruses of on the order of 0.3 microns up to, up to you know, 100 microns, but the bulk being in the sort of 0.3 to 5 to 10 micron range. Um, yeah. And, and so, these and things those, hang the, out in the air for a and while. And they hang out in the air. So at the beginning of this pandemic, there was a lot of misinformation, including from people like Dr. Fauci, who's not, a re, who's not an aerosol scientist, who were saying that particles, you know, that are greater than five microns in diameter fall to the floor very quickly. And a lot of people that understand aerosol science, uh, that have dealt with particles in buildings, know that that's blatantly not true, right? So a five micron particle can stay in air, stays suspended in air for long periods of time. Um, if you take typical uh, air speeds in indoor environments of 10 centimeters per second is a pretty reasonable airspeed. You take that five micron particle or the uh, distance it can travel before it deposits on the surface can be something on the order of, you know, 50 to, to 150 feet, right? So it's not depositing six feet from somebody. Mm. And a lot of the work you've done recently is uh, on the topic of these, your namesake uh, invention, this Corsi Rosenthal box. Can you tell me a little bit about what that is and how that idea uh, was generated? Yeah. So one of the things that bothered me early in this pandemic was that um, people were starting to tune in to the benefits of HEPA air cleaners, um, high-efficiency particulate air filters. Um, these units cost... for for a right-sized unit for most indoor spaces, we're probably talking about $250 to $700 without a lot of difference in the effectiveness of the devices within that range. So, you know, the $700 ones maybe have a few more gizmos, but don't really give you a lot more effectiveness. And that just removes a large swath of America from being able to clean the air in their homes, right? There's a lot of Americans live paycheck to paycheck and 250 bucks. It's just not something that they can invest in. So late one night, just with my engineering cap on, took out a pad of engineering paper, and I said, how can we create something that uh, will be accessible to more people that costs a lot less? And I said, gee, you know, if, if we created the air cleaner such that the walls of the air cleaner were filters themselves, and they were pleated filters, so they have a very large surface area over these four filters, um, and if we use MERV 13 filters, it could actually, they can't remove as many particles on a single pass as a HEPA air cleaner, but they can still remove a lot of, of particles the size that come out of our respiratory system. And if we attach to that a box fan that can move a lot air, a lot of air, a lot more air than the fans and HEPA air cleaners can, we might have something that can help people. And so I threw the idea out on social media, um, just open source. Hey, maybe we should all try this. Like maybe we should start start building these. Um, Wired Magazine picked up on it and interviewed me shortly thereafter. I mean, it was really quickly thereafter. And 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 then Jim Rosenthal, who's a, a person in Texas I've known for a long, many years, built the first one, and then he put it on Twitter, posted it on Twitter, tweeted it, I guess. <laughs> um, and then people became really interested because it looked really nice. He built this unit that looked very professional. 
Um, and it became, through a series of conversations on Twitter, became known as the Corsi Rosenthal Box. Since then, it's just sort of taken off. And there's been some great research done on it at the University of California, Davis, UC Davis, that shows that a Corsi Rosenthal Box can be two to two and a half times as effective uh, two to two and a half times what we call the clean air delivery rate, which is a sort of a metric of effectiveness, than a uh, HEPA air cleaner that costs four times as much money. So we have real data that's been published in a peer-reviewed journal that says not only are these things less expensive and more accessible, but they may be more effective than a lot of HEPA air cleaners, which is just exciting. And and people around the world have picked up on this, and there are people doing big builds now, and these things are distributed around the world, which is really been thrilling for me. It, um, embarrassingly simple idea. Yeah, but it's just... I mean, it, it's it's essentially a box fan connected to co four commercial filters, like what you would buy for your home. I mean, I change mine once a month in, in my house, taped together with a few little engineering things here and there to increase the flow. I mean, very simple. That's right. And, and people before this were attaching a single filter to a box fan, um, and that'll work too. Um, it's not as effective. A single filter attached to a box fan has a lot more resistance than four parallel filters, where you reduce the airspeed and therefore reduce what's called the head loss, the pressure drop. Um, and so with the with the four filter design, the resistance is not much higher than just a box fan with nothing attached to it. But with a single filter, the resistance is pretty high. You don't get as much flow rate, so your clean air delivery rate is lower. You've got to replace the filter much more frequently, but also the potential that with the higher resistance that you could overheat the fan, you know, um, and that's, and that's where the idea of a box itself instead of a single filter came from. Yeah. By my estimate, I, I, it seems like hundreds of people have built many thousands of these, of these devices. And it's, it's a really interesting kind of phenomena to see on social media, You're getting tons of press coverage from CBS evening news and BBC and all these amazing outlets. Um, but a large focus has been in the classroom, for, you know, the K through 12 classroom. So people making these, donating them, uh, students, small children making these. How does that feel to, to see that impact? It feels great. Um, it feels particularly great to see students making them because, um, because it's an educational experience for them. They get to learn to build something. They get to use their hands and they get to turn it on and feel the air blowing out of it and knowing that, that what they've built can actually keep people a little bit safer or a lot safer um, by reducing their inhalation dose of virus-laden aerosol particles. Yeah, a big aspect of this is it's do-it-yourself. It's DIY, right? Have you ever thought about you know commercializing that? No. So um, from the outset, I said no, no commercialization, no patents, and I don't want anybody else to patent it. And I have talked to lawyers about whether somebody else could patent the could steal it and patent the idea. And, they, and what I've been told is no way in hell now because this is all over you know social media, um, and so it'd be hard for somebody to claim the design for themselves. I've been pretty adamant about this. I want this to be open source for people. We have had, an, oh, I won't mention where or who, but there has been an organization that's used the Corsi Rosenthal name and tried to uh, build some and sell them, and we, we stopped them from doing that. Um, they were actually pretty nice about it when we stopped them, but they've stopped using it. And so we are tr trying to trademark the name now so that if anybody tried to use it, you know, we'd know and could stop them from using it. And Jim Rosenthal and I are actually in the process of starting a nonprofit foundation and raising money from the filter industry, we hope, and others, um, to give grants away to people so that they can do big builds and help help those that can't even afford, you know, a Corsi Rosenthal box. Because there's still 
while we while we're able to reach a larger fraction of America now, there's still a lot of people that can't afford sixty five, seventy dollars to build one of these things and and don't have the forty five minutes it takes to do it. Yeah, these have picked up steam, you know, in the sense that the uh, the White House knows about this, has invited you to come up. I imagine it's pretty shocking to have an idea on a notepad that has drawn this much attention on such a simple idea that's kind of adjacent to your the hardcore air quality research that you've been doing in, in your whole career. Um, is there some irony that you find in that? Yeah, there's a lot of irony in it. I've um, I've spent a lot of taxpayer money during my career doing research that you know I'm proud of that, but that basically gets you a pat on the back from colleagues when you publish a paper in a good journal. Um, um, that, that's nice because you you can help educate graduate students, et cetera. But nothing I've ever done in my career has had the impact of an hour and a half of sketching something out on a piece of paper at 1130 at night. What's your, I think it sounds like you're surprised to find yourself here, but now that you're here, I mean, where do you see this going? Where do you want it to go? Um, I'd like more and more people to build them. One of the things that's exciting to me is that people are innovating on these. Um, people are, are building smaller ones for smaller spaces. They're called mini CR boxes. People are uh, decorating them in ways, making them into pieces of furniture, um, using different types of fans, etc. Um, I've seen some hanging from the ceiling in, uh, there was a toy store that had one hanging from the ceiling, different arrangements uh, for these boxes in the wild. So one is cheerleading and, and encouraging people to, con to continue to innovate. For me personally, as dean, I don't have a lot of time, but I'm finally starting a lab. And one of the things I want to do with my lab is to test a lot of different configurations of these, put them in the field, monitor them over time, answer questions like, when should I change the filters on it? Um, is it every four months? Is it every eight months? Of course, that's going to depend on the environment and how often you use it. But we'll be measuring integrated power consumption in the field, which we can use to correlate to total flow through the device uh, over time. And we can start answering questions like that for people that really we haven't been able to answer to this point. So let's go back, um, you know, to your early days. When did science, you know, first enter your life? What was the impetus to get you interested in that? It's a great question. So a little bit about my background. So I'm a first-generation American and a first-generation college student. Um, my parents had a sixth-grade education, and um, my mother did. And my father went back to night school to get his high school diploma when I was five years old. So he did get a high school uh, degree. Um, we didn't know any scientists when I was growing up, none of the friends of the family. Most most people were construction workers and firemen and, and you know, that kind of thing. Um, didn't know any engineers at all. Knew nothing about science or engineering. I took some courses in high school. I thought, yeah, they're kind of fun. Uh, but when I was a senior in high school, I picked up a book in the library, and it was called The Engineer. It was a time-life book, and sort of flipping through the pages, and and engineering looked kind of interesting. I was pretty good at math in high school, and it all looked pretty fascinating to me. And I ended up picking one type of engineering that I thought, that's what I want to do. I want to be an agricultural engineer, which is very ironic, because I was a kid that grew up in Los Angeles and had spent very little time on a farm. Um, but riding around on a tractor, <laughs> which was my vision of an agricultural engineer, seemed appealing to me. And I applied to UC Davis when I was in high school, and I was declined admission to the agricultural engineering program, which was a bit crushing. But, you know, I can say now that I've come back and I'm, you know, the, the college that declined me admission, I'm now the dean of, and I oversee the whole college. So never give up on your dreams. 
but that's where it all started. I ended up going to Humboldt State University, and they only had one type of engineering. It was called environmental resources engineering. I was particularly interested in air pollution, and they actually had some air pollution courses. So um, I took all the air pollution courses and the energy courses that I could I could take there. Um, did very well as an undergraduate, and my wife, who I met at Humboldt State, and I ended up coming back to coming to UC Davis for graduate school and focused on air pollution in graduate school here. Um, so at the time, were you was it a match immediately? Oh, I'm an engineer, that's my calling. I'm going to be a professor and do research no, my whole life. No, 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 it wasn't. Um, because I, I didn't have any role models growing up and I was first-generation college student, I lacked um, confidence. Um, my first couple years at, at then Humboldt State University, now Cal Poly Humboldt, uh, I, I, it was constantly in my mind that I was going to fail and that I was going to have to drop out. And then I, I was always thinking about what will happen if I drop out? What do I do after that? What's my job going to be, right? Where am I going to find a home? And um, I, I was lucky that I had two professors at, Humble, at then Humboldt State, um, both of whom have retired now, um, who kind of took me under their wing. They saw something in me, and they mentored me, and um, um, had a lot of, took a lot of courses from them, and also interacted with them a lot. Um, and I've kept up with them over the years. It's been 40 years since I graduated from Humboldt State University, and I still keep in touch with these two professors. I've been on a three-day hike with one of them in Texas in the Chisos Mountains and you know, built these great relationships with these two people that I'm incredibly indebted to for, for I, I think their confidence in me gave me more confidence, um, and that, that helped me to, to get to a place where I said, yeah, maybe I should go to graduate school. That sounds cool. Never thinking of a life, a career in academia when I made that decision. It wasn't until I got to UC Davis and I started doing research that I got really excited about research. Um, and that's where I started thinking of probably early in my PhD, you know, the decision to stay on for more because I was enjoying the research of my master's degree. Um, and I think it was early in my PhD, I thought, I'm I'm going to try to get a faculty position. And it all worked out. Yeah. So what was that transition like? It was exciting. It was exciting. And at the same time, um, again, thinking about, well, where where will we end up? Um, uh, my wife had a career as well. We had to find a place that was would be good for both of us. She did her graduate work at UC Davis. So many of the things that, that um, new faculty members here have to deal with, right, is that You've got a partner, and you've got to find a place that's good for both of you. And it, it becomes increasingly difficult to find that right place. And we were really fortunate to find a really good place in Ontario, Canada, when I graduated from UC Davis, uh, University of Guelph, which was actually modeled after UC Davis. Um, University of Guelph became its own university, I think, two years after UC Davis did. And the curriculum there was almost identical to Davis. It was a really comfortable move. It was a, a, a big ag school in Ontario, Canada. Is that how you were aware of it? No, actually, just fluke. Um, uh, Gina, my wife, and I were at a conference in Detroit in 1986, I think it was. So this would have been kind of the middle of my PhD or towards the beginning of my PhD. And we, um, we, we rented a car. We decided to take a one-week vacation. And we drove through southern Ontario, New England, and then back through Ontario. And on the way back to Detroit... There was a torrential rainstorm, and we were on what's called the 401, a major highway in Ontario. We pulled off the road, drove about five miles off the road to find a hotel, 
because the rain was just so out. <laughs> We'd never seen rain like this before coming from California. Um, and we pulled into a hotel, couldn't even see where we were. In the morning, it was this beautiful morning, and we left the hotel, and right across the street was this beautiful university called the University of Guelph. We walked around the university. We actually bought T-shirts in the bookstore at the university. Uh, and then it was three, three and a half years later when I was looking for faculty positions, they had an opening, and I asked my wife, I said, remember that place we kind of took shelter in uh, a few years ago? They have an opening. And I said, do you think I should apply? And and uh, Gina said, yeah, and I did. And it was a great experience there. Loved it. Um, probably would still be there had the University of Texas not come calling one night. Um, yeah. So what was the, you know, you're starting out your first lab at this new university, mm -hmm. new country. Mm -hmm. What was the vision of the, of the, what was the, the direction? So the University of Guelph always had a, a very strong agricultural engineering program. And they were transitioning out of agricultural engineering and starting an environmental engineering program. So I was the first environmental engineer they hired. And I was asked to help develop the curriculum, develop the labs. Fortunately, we had some money, and so there was money to put into developing the labs. I was involved with hiring the new faculty, and so started building up the environmental engineering program. Uh, was having a lot of fun, actually, and uh, and then got the call from Texas, which was just too difficult to at least pass up a conversation with. So what was that offer? So that that was an interesting call. So so I was working late. I was an early you know, I was an assistant professor working late, building my own lab at the same time as helping build the whole program. And uh, and they called my home in the evening, and my wife answered the phone. And I got home that evening, and Gina said, oh, by the way, University of Texas called and said that they're interested in uh, speaking with you about an opening they have. And I looked at Gina and she said, I told them we're not interested. <laughs> and I went, what? Because they have a, a great environmental engineering program, University of Texas. And uh, she said, I'm not moving to Texas. If you go to Texas, I'm not, I'm not going with you. Um, and, she, and they offered her to go on an interview. And so I, I ended up, she allowed me to go to Texas to speak to them and have an interview. She refused to go, even though they offered to allow her to go. Um, it happened to be during the big Waco incident mm -hmm. with um, the Branch Davidian FBI standoff, uh, which made things even worse for Gina. She's no, no, not moving to Texas. And um, I was wowed by Austin. I thought it was a wonderful city. I thought the university was wonderful. Uh, I thought the people were wonderful. Went back up to Canada and Gina just said, nope, no, I'm not going to Texas if they make you an offer. Eventually, they made me an offer, <laughs> and then they wanted her to go down, and she didn't want to go down. And this was, you know, this is this kind of stressful two-career family location thing. And uh, eventually, she, eventually, between UT and me, she said, okay, I'll go down. And she went down to Austin and met with folks, saw the city, and came back uh, and said, that doesn't seem like what I envisioned Texas to be. It seemed like... <laughs> San Diego in Texas or something. I think that was her term, actually. Uh, and so she agreed to go. And she ended up having a great career in Austin as well, being a computer scientist, working with IBM her whole career. So with that kind of move, is it your your whole entire research program is like reset or you're just building on what you did already? Is it pretty smooth? Yeah. So I was doing a lot of research at Guelph that was related to my PhD dissertation, which dealt with um, toxic chemical emissions from uh, municipal sewers. And I continued to do that and got funding in Texas to continue that research. And then there became a lot of interest from industry in Texas. Texas has a lot of industry, petrochemical industry. 
and there was new legislation in the United States uh, related to um, hazardous air pollutant emissions from different sources, including on-site industrial sewer systems. And so I've been doing this work on municipal sewers, and suddenly there was all this interest from industry in the work I was doing. So I ended up getting a lot of research funding from industry to study uh, everything from process drains to their wastewater treatment plants, doing um, experimental work. We built a small industrial sewer at University of Texas at Austin, did a lot of work there. Uh, and uh, a lot of the work we did on that for industry was incorporated into US EPA models that allowed industry to uh, estimate their emissions as opposed to measure their emissions, which ended up saving industry a ton of money. Um, so pretty proud of the work that we did that was adopted by the US EPA. While you were there, I, I understand that you uh, took on the moniker of the singing professor. I did, yeah. So uh, when I turned 40, I had no musical talent at all. And my wife will say that I still don't. <laughs> um, and she's probably right. But when I turned 40, uh, I decided to bike. I always wanted to play guitar. Uh, I never had time to learn. And so I bought a guitar uh, and for my 40th birthday gift to myself and started uh, taking guitar lessons in Austin. Austin's a city that has <laughs> several thousand probably uh, musicians, guitarists who make money, uh, make their real money teaching people how to play guitar because they don't make that much money as in bands. Uh, so I got a great guitar teacher and he, uh, he taught me and sort of, sort of, I loved writing songs. And so I started writing a lot of my own songs and that's a way not to become a good guitarist because you stay in your own uh, comfort zone instead of learning to play other people's songs where you learn new riffs, et cetera, right? So chord progressions. So, But I would write a lot of my own songs and my guitar teacher had a recording studio and he would help me record my songs and make my songs better and play on the songs with me. And that's that was a ton of fun for me. Um, and then one day I had this thought, why don't I sing to my students? <laughs> And, and started taking the last lecture of every class, the lecture that oftentimes professors use to summarize the course and talk about the final exam. And so my last lectures became ballads where I incorporated every major topic in the course that the students needed to know for the final exam and also um, every student's name in the course. So I, you know, teaching fluid mechanics, I would have 70 to 80 students to class. So these ballads would be 30 minutes long and you know, my knuckles would be bleeding, my fingers would be bleeding at the end of it. But the students ended up loving it and they loved hearing their name. And um, for me, it was always a great pleasure to meet their parents at graduation and have the parents go, oh, you're the singing professor. And so I, I kept this up and I usually dress up and tie dye outfit and a headband and and uh, try to be as folksy as I could. So you were at, at Austin for uh, over 20 years. Yeah, almost 25 years, a little over 24 years. And yeah. all that time, I'm guessing you're thinking that's going to be your, you know, the place you're going to remain for your career? Yeah, it was. I had a, I had a great gig at Austin. You know, it was, I had a great lab, um, had, had great colleagues there, um, some who were UC Davis graduates, uh, who were some, some of my closest colleagues. Um, Love, loved everything about Austin. Austin was a different city when we first moved there. It doubled in size in the 24 years we were there. It was like kind of a sleepy sort of, uh, you know, music town. And within 24 years, it, it became this sort of high-tech hub. Um, it really changed in flavor. It was still a, a really nice city when we left, but it was a different city when we left. And we really liked the old Austin. 
Um, but the real motivation for leaving was family. And it was particularly on my wife's side. She wanted to be closer to her parents and her sisters. And so that's why we decided to leave. And, and I, was, I think I was ready for a change, too. So I took a position as dean of the College of uh, Engineering and Computer Science at Portland State University, which is, a, um, which is an urban campus in almost right downtown Portland, Oregon. It's an R2 university, so that was different, right? It wasn't a, a major research university, although it was trying to be. And it's a university that served a ton of first-generation college students in Oregon. If you've ever been to Oregon, you'll notice that Oregon is not a particularly diverse state, but if you're going to find diversity in Oregon, it's going to be at Portland State University. And so there was this great satisfaction and fulfillment about being the dean of a college that was a really... In fact, Portland State was rated very highly by U.S. News as a social mobility elevator. Um, we took a lot of students from the lowest economic quartile and gave them great lives. Um, and that was that was really the fulfillment there. Did you find that your history, you know, in hardcore research and then you're starting to kind of move up in the administration? And I understand you were chair of your, of your department in, in Texas. Now you're dean. Is this a linear flow of your responsibilities, or is that really a different job? It's a you know it's a different job when you're dean because um, suddenly you're the dean of lots of departments that you actually have no expertise in. At least when I was a department chair in civil architectural and environmental engineering, I knew a lot of the subject matter of the department I was chair of. I knew the different professional societies that our faculty were involved with, et cetera. As 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 dean. Um, you know, I've, I've learned a lot about computer science and I've learned a lot about, you know, I'm learning a lot about biomedical engineering and, um, and there, there's a lot of fulfillment in that, you know, life is a learning experience, um, and you should never stop learning. And I actually really love learning about what faculty and other disciplines, what faculty and other engineering disciplines are doing. But yeah, so you have to, you have to become more aware, more knowledgeable of more things as a dean. What was it like to come to, you know, return to Davis? After? It's an amazing, right? So, so many memories from a time in our lives as graduate students. We spent seven, seven years living in Davis in married student housing and then a, a duplex we rented and eventually we purchased our first house in Woodland just north of Davis. And those were wonderful years in our lives. They were the first um, seven years of our marriage. We, we moved to Davis just literally a couple weeks to, you know, a month or so after we were married. So there were magical years in our lives. Um, it's great to reminisce. And there's a lot of Davis that hasn't changed. We were members of the food co-op when we were graduate students, and now we're members of the food co-op again. In fact, one of the first things we did when we got to Davis was go to the food co-op and say, do you still have us in your database? Cause, <laughs> and they didn't. Um, but anyway, just things like that are, are fun. And uh, the university's double the enrollment now. So there's, uh, it's a big changes to the university a lot of really positive changes at the university, but the town itself feels sort of as equally comfortable now as it did then. It's a really wonderful place to live. What are some of the challenges you face so far or, or maybe some of the goals that you want to achieve? You know, I think there are great challenges everywhere uh, because of the pandemic. It's been a great burden on, on everybody. It's, you know, we're all carrying around that burden with us is the stress of the pandemic and the stress of having been virtual for a couple of years and not being with colleagues, et cetera. And so, and there's been, a, there's been a great resignation across the country in terms of staff and staff finding new jobs. And, and so that's put extra burden on everybody, the, the staff themselves that are, that are, that are shorthanded, 
um, and 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 also faculty that depend so much on staff. I think that's one of the positive things that might be coming out of this pandemic is making a lot of faculty realize how important staff are. I, I think those are two things that we're all dealing with. And and as deans want to progress, deans want to advance, deans want to to get to the next level with their colleges. That's what that's why most people become deans, right? They want to help and facilitate and get to the next level. But because of what we've all been through for the past two and a half years, we have to be very, very cautious and cognizant of the fact that people have been through a lot and you can't suddenly start flipping lots of switches and saying, we're going to change here and change there and do this and do that. Um, you have to you have to do it as a community. And one of the things that I'm hoping to do as dean is to build, we have a strong community now, but build an even stronger community um, because we've all We've all dealt with, I think, the loneliness and the stress of the pandemic. We need to build a stronger community and then progress together and not just with 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 a dean saying, these are the things we're going to do. So I've been very conscious of that as dean. And I, I think that has been an obstacle for everybody in academia, wherever you are, whatever your field in, is kind of coming out of this thing and, and saying, how do we move forward when everybody's, many people have almost post-traumatic stress syndrome from this pandemic. Yeah. Well, what would people be surprised um, to know that you do outside of science? I love dogs. So um, I, in Austin, I did a lot of volunteer work for the Austin Humane Society. I took all the courses to become a dog trainer, got up to the highest color. I think it was orange or red, dealing with the most behaviorally challenged dogs and spent a lot of time with that. That was sort of a hobby that I had. And I ended up discontinuing it at a certain point because when I was working with the behaviorally challenged dogs, I started really getting attached to them and some of the dogs would 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 bite somebody or lunge and snap at somebody and then they'd be euthanized. And I couldn't handle that anymore because I, I was attached to these dogs uh, and I'd come in and find out that they weren't there anymore and it was just it was really hard on me. So uh, we ended up adopting a dog who was behaviorally challenged from the Humane Society and spent uh, nine years uh, of going through dog training with her and working with her. And I get such joy out of working with dogs. Even today, I'll see dogs in the park, and I just want to run up and <laughs> play with them. You know, their owners are staring at me like, who's, who's this strange guy coming towards us? So what's the last greatest thing that you read or watched? Oh, boy. Oh, boy. I, I, so... One of the last books I read was a book written by Bill Walton, the basketball player who sent me a signed copy of his book because we had an interaction on Twitter. <laughs> that was fun. So I have this book signed by Bill Walton and a little direct message on Twitter from him. And um, um, yeah, and it's amazing who people I've met on on, um, on Twitter. Uh, <laughs> who are pretty well known, who, who have been emailing me and asking me questions about um, indoor air quality. Well, yeah, I know people, if they want to connect uh, with you further, can find you on Twitter. Um, thank you very much for, for joining the, the podcast and for visiting our department today. Talk to you again soon. Thank you so much, Randy.